Are you ready for this? Four things that God does not know. Number one, God does not know a sin he does not hate. God does not know a sin he does not hate. Number two, God does not know a sinner he does not love. Amen? And God does not know a sin he cannot forgive. And the last one, God does not know a better time than now. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and let's ask God to bless us during this time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for grace. And Lord, you said in Psalms 111, the works of the Lord are studied by all. And God, you said your way is in the sanctuary. Father in heaven, we pray for understanding. We pray for the Holy Spirit. And God, we pray by the end of this meeting that we will be lifted up. And God, that our heart would be changed even just by being in the presence of God Almighty. Thank you, Jesus. Bless those who may be coming still. And Lord, we just pray and ask that uh, you'd be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, it's very interesting. Um, I was, uh, I had a knock at the door today. And uh, so I decided to go see who was at the door. I looked through the uh, blinders because uh, something's really strange about my door. Let me just tell you about my door. There, you cannot open the door from the outside. You actually have to unlock it from the inside as well. So I said, hold on a second. I raced to get my key, and I got the key, and I opened up the door, and there's these two wonderful ladies there, and they were standing there with a Bible, and they had some literature, and the literature said the watchtower, and so I was, you know, they were very gracious. They started talking to me and inviting me to some of their events. I don't have a problem with that whatsoever, right? If someone wants to invite me to something, I have no problem about going there, especially if there's food, amen? <laughs> Here's the thing. At the very end of our conversation, I said, hey, do you mind taking some literature? I have as well. And at that moment, they said, no, we don't want any literature. And I said, I said there's just a little bit of problem with that. I said, if you're telling me that I should come to what you're doing and I should accept some of your literature, then you should also be willing to accept some of the literature that I have. And they said, our organization doesn't want us to take any literature. And I said, something's really wrong with that. Very wrong with that. Here's the thing about truth. You don't have to be afraid of questioning the truth. Amen? Because the more you scratch at truth, the shinier it becomes. Amen? And that's the awesome things about God's word. It says in the book of Psalms 119 that the word of God has been purified seven times. Over and over again, it's been put through the refiner. Over and over again, it's been put through the fire. And it comes out brighter and better than before. Amen? One of my favorite preachers, he said it this way, The Bible outlives its pallbearers. The Bible outlives its pallbearers. Did you know French atheists? Philosopher Voltaire said this during his time, during the French Revolution. He said, one day the Bible is going to become an obsolete book. It already is. One day this Bible, no one's going to pay attention to it. Interesting enough, one of his Geneva estates today has now become the book and Bible house of Europe. <laughs> Folks, the Bible outlives its pallbearers. Amen? And this is a book we can trust because this book has been verified over and over again historically, culturally, uh, you can see in archaeology and prophetically, the word of God stands true. Amen? We're not better than anybody else, but all we know is that God's truth is found in this. Amen? Amen. Amen. Tonight's message is entitled, 
Revelation today, prophecy search for the ark. Prophecy search for the ark. Now, what we're going to discover in the next week, we're going to be really rocking your boat. Okay, I just want to give you a warning right now. As you continue along in this seminar, next week and the week after, your boat is going to be really, really rocked. You're going to hear things you may have never heard before, but I promise you one thing, it's going to come from the Word of God. Amen? And what are the three words I always say to you? Check it out. Amen? The freedom of inquiry. We need to be able to check out things and ask questions about things. Amen? So tonight's message is entitled, Prophecy Search for the Ark. Prophecy Search for the Ark. This is not Noah's Ark. Rather, this is also going to be about um, the Bible that's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And as we continue in the scriptures, you're going to find this out. You have the Ark of the Covenant. It's a mysterious object that's found in the Old Testament. There's, may, there's some mention of it in the New Testament as well. It has been revered. This, this interesting piece of furniture by pagans has been seen as some type of weapon. Some of the secularists who study the Bible have seen the Ark of the Covenant. Some people have called it alien technology. It apparently has some type of capability where it's able to wipe out armies. And so the world has always looked at the Ark of the Covenant as some type of mysterious thing. Not sure what it's all about. A lot of people have gone to lengths to search for the Ark of the Covenant. Some say they have found the Ark of the Covenant. Others decide to build, make movies about the Ark of the Covenant. But over and over again, the question comes, where is this mysterious box that possesses so much power? Some of you guys might know about this movie that came out, what, last year? Just kidding. When did this movie come out? About the 80s, right? It was called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the, what? Lost Ark, right? And it was about how Indiana Jones discovers the Lost Ark. That's the Ark of the Covenant. We have seen this box in pictures, in movies, and in paintings, but a lot of people are asking the question, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? If it was such a special box, if it was something that was blessed by God, where is it today? Some individuals have decided to spend lots of money to go look for the Ark of the Covenant. Some people believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in the Ethiopian church. Now what's interesting, the Ethiopian church, about 2009, I believe it was June 25, 2009, said that they were going to show the entire world the Ark of the Covenant. A few days later, they said that was a misprint. And so they decided not to show it. They said that wasn't us. That was the media telling the world that we were going to show it. But they claimed to have the Ark of the Covenant. They also claimed to have 50,000 different replicas of the Ark of the Covenant as well, as well as, pieces of the ark, as pe well as pieces of the actual cross. Some individuals like this man, his name was Ron Wyatt. He's actually dead now. But he claims that he himself saw the Ark of the Covenant he was digging with his sons one day, and he was going into this mysterious, unusual hill. And he believes on that point is where Jesus died. And as he began to dig and dig, he all of a sudden lost consciousness and woke up. And there he saw a glimpse of the ark. And unfortunately, the camera decided not to work very well during that moment, which is usually the case, right? And so there's a lot of people who have claimed to see it. Individuals like this also say that if you come and you pay $10,000, you can see the ark too. Unfortunately, this individual has been known to rip off people as well. 
So you can see a lot of people are asking the question, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Where actually is this mysterious box that apparently has so much power? Where is this actual Ark? Well, the only historic reference we have about the Ark of the Covenant come from the second book of Maccabees. Now, the book of Maccabees is not really seen as a religious book, but it is seen to have some type of historic content. And it was during the Babylonian uh, warfare that was taking place against Israel that Jeremiah, this is what was written, Jeremiah ordered that the tent and the ark should follow with him. And he went up on the mountain where Moses had gone up and had seen the inheritance of God. And Jeremiah came and found a cave and he brought the tent and the ark and the altar of incense and he sealed up the entrance. The place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear, and as they were shown in the case of Moses. Folks, this is where a lot of scholars believe, this is where a lot of scholars are at. They believe that somewhere in Israel, that the Ark of the Covenant still lies hidden, undiscovered, untouched by any human hands. Now, this is very interesting. And the reason why it's very interesting is because it's leading us to a question we need to ask that's even more important than where is the Ark, but rather what is the Ark of the Covenant? What is the Ark of the Covenant? And I believe by the end of this message, you're going to have a knowledge from Scripture about the Ark of the Covenant and why it's so important for end-time events. Why it's so important for end-time events. Well, God spoke to Moses one day. God was speaking to this man of God, and he took him up on the mountain, and he said this to Moses. He said, Moses, I want you to make me a sanctuary. Now, I want you to write that down in your study guide. If you don't have a study guide, just raise your hand, and we'll get that to you ASAP. God tells Moses something very interesting. He says, let them, let the people of God Make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a house, a tent, that I may dwell among them. God's people didn't have houses. They had tents. So God told his people, hey, give me a tent as well. And so God told the people of Israel, and you find the instructions in Exodus and Leviticus where God actually describes the details about this beautiful house that would possess the Ark of the Covenant. And this house had walls that were burnished with gold and with paintings. And we're going to get into some of the design today and why it's very important. This sanctuary, this tabernacle, went with Israel wherever God went, wherever the Israelites went. And God's presence was upon the sanctuary. At night, there was a pillar of fire. And during the day, there was a cloud to lead Israel. Only the Levites were involved in the construction and the transportation of this house. In it had very special possessions, and we're going to get into some of that right now. Watch what God tells Moses to build right before the sanctuary. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting. So what would take place was that right before the tabernacle, right in front of the sanctuary, there'd be this very interesting uh, altar, and it was called the altar of burnt offering. And what would take place at the altar of burnt offering, whenever an individual committed sin, whenever there was uh, atonement taking place by the Israelites, they would take a lamb. They would take a what? 
a lamb. That's exactly what, just an innocent lamb without blemish. Has anybody, does anybody ever taken care of a lamb before? One person, two people. Wow, we need to get some lambs in Modesto. Okay, well, you were to take a lamb, an innocent lamb, if you committed sins against God, and you were to take this lamb to the priest, and while the priest held the lamb, you were to confess your sin to the lamb. Your sins would be transformed, transferred to the lamb, and what would take place is that the lamb would be slain for your sins. It was designed to teach a message to the Israelites that their sin had a consequence, and only the life of something innocent could take away that sin. And so what took place at the altar of the burnt offering was that lambs were sacrificed. And right before, right after the altar burnt offering, there would be a, a, a laver of, of bronze. Basically, it looked like a bird feeder. And what it was, was a place where the priests would wash their hands right after the sacrifice. Okay, so there we have it. We have the sanctuary right here. Then we have the laver right here, and then we have the altar of sacrifice. So the priest would sacrifice the lamb, he would wash his hands there, and then he would take the blood into the sanctuary. Well, what took place inside the sanctuary? Inside the sanctuary, you had two compartments. How many compartments? Two, okay. The first place was called the holy place, and the second place was called the most holy place. And there you have a picture right there. I want you to see it. I know it's a little fuzzy right there. But see right there, there you have the holy place. And right there you have the most holy place. And it was inside the most holy place that the Ark of the Covenant was present. Where was the Ark of the Covenant? Most holy place. Okay, so I want you to follow the sequence, okay? So whenever an individual committed sin, they would take their lamb to the priest. The priest would sacrifice it right here. He'd wash his hands, and he'd walk in there each and every day, and he would spread blood upon the different altars. Once a year, the high priest would go straight in to the most holy place where the ark was located and sprinkle blood upon the ark of the covenant. But inside the holy place, there was some furniture. Look at some of the furniture. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. On what side? South side. That's very important, okay? So here we are. We're going inside the sanctuary. You walk inside the sanctuary in the holy place. You look to the south side, and there you have the menorah, right? You ever seen the menorah in Jewish synagogues and and very acquainted with a lot of Jewish symbology, the menorah came from that. And so you look to the right side, and what you will see is a table of showbread. So on the left side, the south side, you have the candlestick, and on the right side, the north side, you have the table of showbread. He put the table in the tabernacle meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now I'm going to ask you a question right now. All right? If we're walking inside the sanctuary, I want you to pay attention to me. If we're walking inside the sanctuary, we look to the left, what are we going to see? The candlesticks, right? We look to the north side, what are we going to see? The table of showbread. Therefore, where is the entrance? What direction? East. By the way, did you know when Adam and Eve sinned, there were angels that were guarding the east side of the Garden of Eden? 
representing the entrance into the presence of God was barred by angels when Adam and Eve sinned. But here you have God doing something very special with the sanctuary. He is showing how man may find entrance to the throne of God. This is throughout the entire Old Testament. It is the foundation of the Jewish economy. And right in front of him, look what the Bible says in Exodus 40, verse 26 to 27. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of the meeting in front of the veil. He burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so here we are. We're walking into the sanctuary. We look to the left, and there we see the what? The candlesticks. We look to the right. What are we going to see? The table of Shobet. And right in front of us, what are we going to see? The altar of incense. That's exactly right. And these three pieces of furniture were in the holy place of God. They were in the what? Holy place of God. That's exactly right. But folks, you remember something very important. You remember that there's two compartments to the sanctuary. You had the holy place where you have the candles, where you have the table of showbread, and where you have the altar of incense. But there was the last compartment, the second compartment, called the most holy place. What was it called? the most holy place, and only once a year would somebody go into the most holy place. Day and night, the priests were allowed in the holy place, but only once a year was somebody allowed in the most holy place, and that was on the Jewish Day of Atonement. The day of what? The Day of Atonement. So make sure you write that down. Now watch what Moses says to the people of Israel. Exodus 26, verse 33 then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony, that's the Ark of the Covenant, in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the what? Most holy place. So what separated the holy place from the most holy place, ladies and gentlemen? It was a veil. A veil was actually the veil that separated, the curtain that separated, you can see a picture of it right there, an artist's rendition, was actually several inches thick. It was covered with angels. What was it covered with? Angels. That's exactly right. Now, this is very interesting. We're still wondering, some of us are still wondering, asking the question, what does all this mean? What is God actually telling the Israelites to do, and what's the significance? You're going to see. Just hang on. Now watch what's inside the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. Watch what's inside the Ark. A lot of people are so interested in the Ark of the Covenant, but they have no idea what's actually inside the Ark of the Covenant. Watch what God says right here telling Moses. I, then I turned and I came down from the mountain, this is Moses speaking, and I put the tablets. What are the tablets referring to? The Ten Commandments. That's exactly right. I put the tablets in the what? Ark, which I had made, and there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. So inside the Ark of the Covenant, which made it very holy, were the Ten Commandments written with a what? Finger of God. That's important. Don't miss that point, okay? Watch what else is next to the Ark. Take this book of the law, that's the Mosaic writings. You had two laws in the Old Testament. You had the writings of Moses, and then you had the Ten Commandments. The writings of Moses were written by Moses, and the Ten Commandments were written by God. Now watch what God tells Moses to do. Take this book of the law and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. 
It says inside the Ark of the Covenant. How about the people in the back? What's it say? It says beside the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's very, very important, okay? So the Ten Commandments are inside the Ark, and the Book of Moses, where is where? Beside the Ark. It's on the outside of the Ark. Don't lose that point, okay? Now watch what the Ark of the Covenant has on top of it. This is extremely important. Exodus 25, verses 18 through 20. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. What are cherubim? They are angels. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Those are the two angels that are on top of the ark. Of the hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherub, cherubim at the two ends of the one piece with the mercy seat. You can see the details in this ark. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. Now God describes how he wants the Ark of the Covenant. Now don't miss this point, it's extremely important. He says you're going to lay a, a wooden cover, which is burnished or covered with gold, it's overlaid with gold, and on top of it, you're going to have two angels. You're going to have two what? Angels, and their wings are going to be spread over the mercy seat, and they're going to be in the direction, the general direction of each other, but their faces are going to be where? Their faces would be looking towards the mercy seat. Now, this is very important, folks. Don't miss this point, okay? God isn't just wanting some detailed work here. He's not just wanting some artist's beautiful, artistic work. What he is doing is being very intentional with this. He is trying to convey a point. He's trying to convey a what? A point. Those two angels that are standing over the mercy seat, they're looking at each other, but where are they facing? They're facing the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. You know what God was describing here? He was describing the wonders of the angels, the wonder of the angel or the angelic world and the universe when they're seeing the justice of God and the mercy of God meeting. Now you're thinking to yourself, can I have some more scripture? I'm going to show you right now. Take your Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1162. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1162. Are we there? Okay. Verse 10. I love how everybody's saying amen and we're there and you can still hear the pages coming over. By the way, they say that's music to the ears of a preacher when he hears the Bible turning. But you know what one preacher said? He said, some people have so much dust on their Bibles, they can write the word damnation on it. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1. Are we all there? 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 10. I want you to see something very interesting. thought I'd prod you a little bit to wake you up. Okay. Of this, what's that next word? Salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the, what? Grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before the sufferings of Christ and to the glories that would follow. Now keep your finger there. I want you to pay attention to this, okay? This is extremely important. 
What Peter is saying is this, that many of the prophets, they were writing about the Messiah, they were writing about the grace of God, but they themselves had no idea what they were writing about. They were talking about something that was going to happen in the future. They knew something big was going to happen. They knew that God's mercy would be poured out, but they had no clue what was going on. Now let's continue. Verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels, what? Desire to what? Look into. Folks, I want you to understand this. Don't miss this point. It is so powerful. Those people in the Old Testament, the books of Isaiah and the books of Jeremiah, they knew they were writing things for the future, but they didn't quite understand it. They were writing things about the Messiah. They were writing things about what? Or who the Messiah was and what he would accomplish. But they didn't quite know the whole picture. And as they were writing it, they knew that it was going to be understood in the future. But it's interesting how Peter ends this. He says this in this passage, that these things we now have seen right before our eyes, we have actually seen the glory of God. We've actually put our hands around the glory of God. That was Jesus. We walked with the glory of God. That was Jesus. We sat at his feet and we listened to the glory of God. That was Jesus. And then he says, these are things that angels desire to look into. Now, why is it that angels would be curious about Jesus? The reason why these angels are curious about Jesus, the reason why God had those two angels right before the presence of God staring at the mercy seat right over the justice of God, the Ten Commandments, is because they were being so blown away about how a people that were worthy of death, that were worthy because of justice to die because of their transgression, how a people that were so guilty of sin who turned their back on God could still receive mercy from God. You want to know why angels are so blown away by mercy and grace? Because they've never seen it before. Why? They didn't sin. We're not talking about the rebellious angels. We're talking about those angels that did not sin against God. There was never a sinner in heaven prior to the Lucifer. And so they, all they knew was the justice of God. All they knew was doing things right. They just had this inclination. As easy as it is for us to do bad, it was easy for them to do good. They had it in their nature to do which was right. And when mankind fell into sin, the natural inclination was, these people deserve justice. The guilty deserve justice. But at the same time, God came rushing towards them and covered them with his mercy. And the angels were like, we have never seen this before. And so what God was describing in the book of Exodus was how sinful people could come before the very presence of God and how the angels would be seeing the justice of God, but then they would see the mercy seat cover the justice that was due to us. Can you say amen to that? The Bible says our world is a spectacle to the universe. God has created countless worlds and countless other lives that have not fallen into sin. And as they look at our sinful planet, as they look at the, at the transgression of mankind and all the things we do, as they look at all the ways we turn away from God, they wonder in amazement, how is it possible that God could love somebody like them? 
They are blown away by it. They are learning things about God they have never known before. And so part of our controversy that we're in, part of our lives each and every day, folks, is that we are being a witness for God, either for the good or for the bad. We are being a witness for God. Now watch what else is said. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark. There was this beautiful glory that shone right over the, the ark of the covenant, and it was called the Shekinah glory. It was called the what? Shekinah glory, and all it was was this beautiful light, and what took place was when the high priest on that day of atonement would come in, right before the ark, he would sprinkle blood, and he would see that beautiful ark there with the two angels that are in the general direction of each other, but looking at the ark, they, he would see the glory of God. And you know what's very interesting? On the day of atonement, the, the, the high priest actually had to wear bells. He had to wear what? Bells. You can read about that in the book of Leviticus. He would actually wear bells because what would happen is, is all the people on the Day of Atonement would be gathered in Israel's camp and they would be waiting outside the sanctuary. They'd be waiting where? Outside the sanctuary because that high priest would walk in. And as long as they could hear the bells, as long as they could hear the movement of the high priest, they knew that he was still alive. And it meant so much it was, it was music to their ears when they could hear that bell ringing because they knew that God was accepting Israel, that he was still giving his favor to the camp, and that that was so beautiful. It was music to their ears. This was better than jingle bells, folks. They were hearing some beautiful noise. Amen? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7 describes this event that takes place once a year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the most holy place. Look what it says. But in the second part, the high priest went with some friends. Is that what it says? No. Into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. So when did the high priest go into the most holy place? Once a year, and it was called the Day of Atonement. Now, this is extremely important. You're still wondering to yourself, Anel, what does this have to do with end-time prophecy? You're going to see. Just hang on. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, describes something that happens on the Day of Atonement. All of Israel would gather there, waiting for that Day of Judgment, it was called. And as the high priest walked in there, as long as they could hear the bells, they, were, they knew he was okay. But what take place right before the high priest went into the most holy place, the Israelites would gather with all the priests and they would take two goats. How many goats? Two goats. They would cast lots and the one that represented the sin of Israel was taken in. He was taken in and he was sacrificed and his blood was sprinkled. The other goat was called the scapegoat. He was called the what? Scapegoat. When Israel, or when the high priest came out of the most holy place, all the people would cheer, and they would be so excited because they knew that God had accepted Israel. They would take that one second goat, that last goat, and they would do something. Watch what it says in Leviticus 16, verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, 
confess it over all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man, or it says in the King James, a fit man. So what would take place is when the high priest came out of the holy place and all the people cheered, they would take that one goat, the scapegoat, and they would send him off. Some buff man would take that goat and he would pull that goat, that stubborn old goat, and he would take it off in some desolate wilderness and he would leave it there. And once he left it there, he would immediately vacate the area. And this was all important because it represented something so powerful and you're going to see shortly what it represented. Folks, I'm going to say something, and I, I'm going to say this as strong as I can, as clear as I can. The sanctuary service was a school. It was a what? School. A school. And what is the purpose of school? The purpose of school is about being educated. God was trying to educate the children of Israel about a very important lesson, and it was the lesson of redemption. The lesson of what? Redemption about how God is saving his people. You know why that's very important? Because God has a dilemma on his hands. The object of God's hatred, i.e. sin, is in the heart of the object of God's great love, humanity. And so God has a big problem because he needs to separate the object of his hatred, sin, from the object of his love, sinners. And folks, there's one thing we all have in each one of us, and that is sin. But God loves us in spite of our sin. Amen? And so what God has devised through the sanctuary service is a way that sin can be removed from humanity. But the sanctuary service, the earthly sanctuary service was just a copy. It was a what? Now watch what Moses says right here in Exodus 25, verse 8 through 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may what? Dwell among them according to all that I what? Show you. Now notice this. The way that God teaches Moses about how to build this sanctuary is not just verbatim. He's not just giving him instruction. The Bible says he's actually showing him. What does that mean? The sanctuary service set on earth was just a copy. It was a what? A copy of something much more bigger and greater than Moses was building. Let's see what Exodus says. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Now watch what it says in verse 40. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you. That's the blueprints that was shown you on the mountain. What God showed Moses was the original sanctuary. Was the what? Original sanctuary. Moses was not completing or making an original sanctuary. All he was making was a smaller copy of what he had seen in heaven. What he what? Seen in heaven. So what are you saying, Anel? I am saying that there is a divine sanctuary service, and God wants us to understand this. Look what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. The Bible teaches that there is a heavenly sanctuary. 
This is where the problem where most Christians sort of just tune out, where most Christians don't like talking about this, where most pastors and preachers sort of just walk off and rather talk about fluffy things. But folks, I want you to understand something. God put it in the Bible for us to understand. Amen? And a lot of people are just asking themselves the question, well, what is Jesus waiting for? I thought he defeated Satan at that cross. Why hasn't he come back? It's been 2,000 years. Folks, you're going to find out on Friday why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And it's going to blow your mind away. Folks, I really believe Satan will do all in his power to stop you from coming to these meetings and understanding what the Bible teaches. Because when you go through this, and this is only part one of the sanctuary, you're going to be blown away and you're going to understand what in the world is going on in heaven right now as we speak? The Bible teaches that Jesus himself is the true high priest. He was the what? True high priest. And he has made his own sanctuary. He erected it and it was not man-made. The one that Moses made was a man-made copy, and it was designed to point the Israelites to the great plan of redemption that God himself was accomplishing. Amen? Look what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, that's man's hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Folks, Christ has gone into the heavenly sanctuary. He's gone into the what? Heavenly sanctuary, the one that's in heaven right now, the big one, the great one, the original, the true one, where God is actually accomplishing the plan of redemption. And why is that very important? The reason why it's very important, folks, is because God left it there for us to show us how we can be saved. He left it for the Israelites there. He designed it for the Israelites and for all the generations to come that they would say, wait a second, I want to understand something about salvation. I want to understand what God is actually doing right now. And what they would do is they would go into the sanctuary service and they would begin to understand what God was up to. They would begin to understand what he was accomplishing during the sanctuary service. And folks, it's going to set up what's going to happen on Friday night and it's going to blow your mind away. Everything that took place in the Old Testament was a shadow. It was a what? Shadow. Now, when someone's coming around the corner, right, and you see their shadow, that's an indication they're about to come over, right? That's exactly right. And so what you saw in the Old Testament were shadows of things to come. They were what? What word did I use? Shadows. That's exactly right. So when the Israelites would take that poor innocent lamb and they would sacrifice it, it was shadowing Jesus Christ, the true lamb of God. And that's what John says. The next day John saw Jesus coming and towards him and he said, Behold the lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Amen? But here's the thing. People just stop right there and they say, That's all I know about salvation. We know that Jesus ascended to heaven and he's doing something there. And sometimes when we try to think about it, we imagine God on his throne and there's just light shining out and we're just thinking, what is he doing right now? But folks, you're going to understand from Bible prophecy what God is up to and it is worth everything to you because it has to do with your salvation. Watch this. David himself understood the sanctuary. He understood that there was something powerful about it. Look what he says in Psalms 20, verse 2. May he, that's God, send you help from the 
sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Psalms 28, verse 2, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Psalm 77, verse 13, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Psalm 96, verse 6, honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. David understood that there was some type of unlimitable power that was found in the sanctuary service, and so he studied it out. In fact, these are only just one-third of all the verses that David says about the sanctuary. Folks, we need to understand this matter more than ever before, because God wants us to understand what he is doing in heaven right now in the tabernacle that he has set up. Look what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 says. Seeing then we have a great, what? High priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a double negative, which means it's a positive. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus began the ministry of redemption by first coming as the Lamb of God. He was sacrificed as the Lamb, and then he began the next step of ministry. He became the great high priest, and he has now entered into heaven, into the heavenly sanctuary, and he is before the throne of God. Can you say amen to that? But there's more to the story, folks. What you're going to find out about Friday is going to help you to realize the times that we are in. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Amen? Amen? In the Old Testament, only a man, a human being, could be a high priest. It was somebody who was part of Israelite culture. It was a Levite. And so when Jesus Christ became a man, he became the personal representative of humanity. He became our great high priest. And folks... Why this is so beautiful? Because we have a God in heaven who understands our weaknesses. Amen? He knows what it's like to live in our world. He's not some type of parent that's out of touch with their child because of their different generations. No, no. God understands what, what it is to live in a human body. He knows what it's like to be tempted by the devil. He knows what it's like to come from a family where things don't go right. God knows. His own brothers rejected him. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by his best friend because he was. He knows what it's like when you feel forsaken by God. Because when Jesus was on the cross, all he sensed was that void and that darkness. Jesus knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was acquainted with grief. Jesus knows what depression is all about. He knows what sadness is all about. He knows what emptiness is all about. He knows what temptation is all about. He knows what fighting is all about. He knows what betrayal is all about. He knows all those things, folks. There is nothing that Jesus has not gone through that he can identify with you today. You may think to yourself, God doesn't know what, he, what I'm going through. Yes, he does, because he went through it. God knows what it's like when he was on the cross. And the people were offering him drugs just to, just to deaden the pain, and he wouldn't take it. He knows what it's like 
When he was starving and there in the 40 days in the wilderness and he was rejecting that food and the devil was tempting him, he knows what that's like. He knows when the whole world was offered to him to take another path. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, folks. We can never say to ourselves, God doesn't understand. God understands more than any of us what humanity's life is all about. And that's why he's our high priest. Amen? And I like what it says right there. He was in all points tempted as we are. All points, yet without sin. God overcame. Jesus didn't say rejoice because you've overcome. He said rejoice because I have overcome. Praise God. Our rejoicing is not in our overcoming. It's in his overcoming. Amen? Look what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Let us therefore, that's the continuation of that same verse. Let us therefore come, what's that next word? Boldly to the throne of grace. Wait a second, what is God saying right here? He is saying that it is possible for someone as sinful as you, as messed up as you, and feeling like junk like you, may be able to approach the throne of God, not timidly, not gently, but the Bible says boldly. That sinful people like us can stand in the presence of a holy God? Because of Jesus we can. And that's why God loves it when we come to him just as we are sinful, helpless, and needy. You know, the, I've been a Christian for about 10 years, and the more I'm growing, and the more I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. Ask anybody who knows me, amen? But the thing, I wish there were more amens for that one right there. But here's the thing I got to tell you. The more I'm discovering, there will be times when I think to myself, I've crossed the line with God. i finally crossed the line with God, and God says to me, no, you haven't. Keep coming to me. Keep coming to me. Victory is found in coming to Jesus. Amen? Jesus justifies us before we're qualified. Amen? And he makes us acceptable even before we're acceptable. Amen? And praise the Lord for his righteousness, his grace, because people like us, People like us, backsliders like all of us, can approach to the throne of God. And look what it says. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, we can come to Jesus because he's our Savior. Amen? And God presents each one of our prayers as sinful, as polluted as they may be. He presents it with his precious blood those prayers, and they come out beautiful. Amen? Amen. 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 Folks, it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from. We have a high priest right now, right now, the Bible teaches, who is interceding for us. Look what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the, what's that next word? Uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make, what's that next word? intercession. You know what Jesus is doing for you right now? Every person right now, Jesus is taking you and he is presenting you before the Father. And so when God is looking at you, he is not seeing you. He is not seeing your sinful robes. He is seeing Jesus and his righteousness. And God is doing that right now for every person. He's interceding. You may think that there's nobody in this world who's praying for you, folks. But God's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you right now. Do you know that? You may have thought that you ended up here by yourself, but Jesus was praying for you. Jesus was praying and pleading before the Father, I want them to be saved. 
And through circumstances and through a variety of events, you ended up here. But folks, I want you to understand something. It's because Jesus was praying for you. He was praying for you. He was interceding for you right now. Do you know Peter? He came before Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, the devil wants you. He says, the devil's after you. But then he says, Peter, I prayed for you. I've interceded for you. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Jesus told Peter, Peter, the devil's on your case, but I'm praying for you right now. God is praying for you right now. The Bible says he lives to make intercession. In other words, he is so excited about praying for you. You may think you're a person without prayer or no one's praying for you. There's somebody praying for you. Jesus, our great high priest, is praying for us right now. And he's there. Folks, can you hear the bells? Amen? Jesus is interceding for us. I love what this writer said. So beautiful. It's found in the book Desire of Ages, considered one of the most beautiful books on the life of Christ. Though now he has ascended to the presence of God. Don't miss this, folks. Though now he has ascended to the presence of God and shares the throne of the universe, Jesus has lost none of his compassionate nature. Today, the same tender, sympathizing heart is open to all the woes of humanity. Today, the hand that was pierced is reached forth to bless more abundantly his people because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. His people that are in the world and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The soul that has given himself to Christ is more precious in his sight than the whole world. The Savior would have passed through the agony of Calvary that one might be saved in his kingdom. He will never abandon one from whom he has died. Unless his followers choose to leave him, he will hold them fast, even the weakest one of them. Through all our trials, we have a never-failing helper. He does not leave us alone to struggle with temptation, to battle with evil, and to be finally crushed with the burdens and sorrows. Though now he is hidden from mortal sight, the ear of faith can hear his voice saying, Fear not, for I am with you. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Revelation 1.18 I have endured your sorrows, experienced your struggles, encountered your temptations. I know your tears. I have also wept. The griefs that lie too deep to be breathed into any human ear. I know. Think not that you are desolate and forsaken. Though your pain touch no responsive cord in any heart on earth, though no one cares. Look unto me, God says, and live. The mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Lord that has mercy on thee. Isaiah 54 verse 10. However much a shepherd may love his sheep, he loves his sons and his daughters more. Jesus is not only our shepherd, he is our everlasting father. And he says, I know my own. And my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father. What a statement is this, the only begotten son, he who is in the bosom of the father, he whom God has declared to be the man that is my fellow. Zechariah 13 verse 7. The communion between him and the eternal God is to represent the communion between Christ and his children on earth. Because we are the gift of his father and the reward of his work, Jesus loves us. He loves us as his children. Reader, that's you, that's me. 
He loves you. Heaven itself can bestow nothing greater, nothing better. Therefore, trust. Can you say amen to that? Now that's inspired by God. Folks, I want you to understand something right now. Right now, right now, as sure as the word of God states, there is somebody who is in heaven on our behalf. Somebody just like you who is standing there, who went through all the trials you've gone through and experienced temptations, he is there right now and he is pleading for your soul, your salvation right now. And you can come to him just right now and say, Lord, here I am. This is what you got. And because of the blood of Jesus, God covers your sins. Somebody even just like you. Charles Wesley, the great preacher, said this, God loves me even me. Folks, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, right now we know that even in the midst of this world and this humongous universe, you have our picture in your mind. And God, we just thank you. As people as undeserving and unworthy as us, Lord, you love us with an infinite love. God, we thank you for the son, Jesus. Thank you for sending God in the flesh to come as our savior and to die for us. And even if we're the only person who sinned, Lord, you would have died for people like us, for somebody just like us, me and you. Lord, thank you for being our high priest. As we continue on this journey, God, only two weeks left, we know that we're gonna see some exciting things. Lord, help us to be faithful and help us to be determined, God, to seek you. Because your promise is, you will be found of us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.